Welcome. Glad you're here. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for saying you're welcome. <laughs> you don't have a choice, right? Pastor's daughter doesn't get a choice. She comes to church. <laughs> well, if you have a Bible this morning, uh, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 this morning. And as you turn there, let me say a word of prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we're overwhelmed by your goodness and your grace in our lives today. We thank you so much that your word says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we thank you that, uh, that you have come and taken our penalty completely. And that uh, any guilt that we experience, any condemnation that we feel as Christ followers, we know was taken by you on the cross. And so we thank you that not only is forgiveness available, uh, but that we can stand before you justified, not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that was given to us through Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that because we know that we're not righteous in and of ourselves. Your word says in Romans 3.23 that there is no one righteous, not even one that we're all sinners. And so we worship you, Jesus, that you took our punishment on the cross on our behalf and that we can stand here before God fully justified because of the work you accomplished for us. We thank you for your word in Jude verse 24 that says, Now to the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and the one who can present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, thank you that you present us to the Father with great joy joy, blameless in His presence. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And so this morning, it's our joy just to come together and with the saints to declare the praises of You, Jesus, to exalt Your name, to thank You for the work that You accomplished for us on the cross. We ask this morning that you take your word, that you give us your Holy Spirit, and by your Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and our teacher. We know that through the many verses that I might share this morning, Holy Spirit, you may take one of those and just apply it to somebody's life and situation this morning. And they might leave here thinking, that's exactly what I needed to hear today. So I pray that you would do that work this morning. We pray that you would have your way during this time and that you would use your word to challenge us and change us and make us more and more like you. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our culture has been fascinated with before and after pictures. Have you ever seen before and after pictures? Uh, the, the, the Greatest Loser was one of those shows where people would come in looking one way and at the end of a period of time there would be a significant transformation they would uh, they would endure all this work and all this difficulty and all this sweat but but at the end of it they would really come out looking completely different uh, I, I love those pictures I love to see um, instant change I work in a job where I don't see a lot of uh, instant gratification I could work uh, laboring over the word of God for weeks and weeks and weeks and teaching week after week and 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 not always see instant transformation that's why I like to mow my yard from time to time is because it, there's a moment when it looks terrible and then there's a few hours later where it looks fine it looks good again and uh, so we kind of need that sort of gratification the the before and after the the bad turned into good 
Uh, a few years ago, I did um, a workout program called P90X. I know I don't want to cause anybody to stumble uh, this morning, uh, but I did that, and I did three cycles of it, and my before and after pictures really didn't look that different. I just have one of those weird body types that <laughs> you would never know if I lifted weights, right? I'd always look kind of the same. I just, I don't know what it is, but, but I do love seeing clear transformation. Now, where I'm going with that is, Um, All of your Christian life, if you've been raised in church, you've seen examples of before and after pictures of someone who gets saved, someone who is far from God, someone who was a rebel, someone who walked in complete sin, and then they, they came to the altar, and maybe they knelt, and maybe they gave their life to Jesus, and there was a radical transformation. You've seen those pictures before, right? In some ways, we think that those are like a luxury, right? If I only had a significant testimony, if only I had an amazing story of transformation where I was this amazing rebel and then did all these terrible things and then God saved me and I became this redeemed sinner. And we call that a luxury, but it's not a luxury uh, because there are scars that go with that. But there is a sense in which those believers who have that radical transformation story they don't often struggle with the concept of assurance of salvation, do they? They can point to a day and to a time and to a moment. Oftentimes, I share my testimony and I'm able to pinpoint it to a day on a calendar, to a time and an hour, to a, an address in the city. I know exactly when and where and how and all the details surrounding my salvation. But for those of you who've grown up in church and grown up in Christian families, oftentimes uh, you struggle with assurance because you can't pinpoint a time when you gave your life to Jesus. You can't look at a before and after picture and see uh, a one lifestyle here and a new lifestyle here. And so that makes it really difficult for some people who struggle with this idea of assurance of salvation. This is a very difficult thing in the life of churches. Uh, And so we struggle with this idea of, of, am I saved? Am I genuinely a Christ follower? Have I really given my life to Jesus? or, Or am I just a moral person? Hebrews has really put its finger on that and gently, maybe not even gently, but has put pressure on our idea of assurance, hasn't it? Yeah, week after week, he says things like, don't neglect the salvation that you've heard. Don't drift away from salvation in Jesus. Uh, This morning, we're going to read probably one of the uh, most difficult passages in the New Testament. And it places its finger on the area of, are you saved or are you not? Are you a believer or are you not? There's a reality that some people pray the prayer of salvation over and over and over again. Uh, There's a reality that many people wonder if they were sincere when they did it. Did I really mean it? Was I emotional enough? And and did it really take? And if it hasn't, do I have to say it again? They struggle with the idea, what if I prayed this prayer and nothing happened? And so we want to talk this morning about how you can have assurance of salvation. We want to talk this morning about what the Bible says, uh, how to know for sure that you're saved. Jesus presented the reality that that there will be weeds among the wheat, right? He presented the reality that there would be wolves among the sheep, that there would be um, people who are in the church that would look saved, but that would not be at all. Paul warned Timothy uh, to pay careful attention 
He says, now the Spirit expressly says in later times that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28-30, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We know that even in a room like this, that there are many people who are not Christ's followers. There are many people in this room who have not genuinely expressed faith and repentance in Christ that are trusting in the finished work of Jesus, but are instead counting on their own self-righteousness or their own self-good works or their own moral uh, sort of behaviors or their own attendance to church or their own adherence mentally to a theological system. So how do we know for sure? And what can this passage teach us about how to know that we are held in His hand? Well, let's read Hebrews 6, 1-8. through The author tells us, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it's impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Uh, first glance, you read a passage like that and you think, this is talking about Christians. This is talking about Christians who heard the Gospel and, and they walked with God for a while and then at some point they fell away. And because they fell away from the faith, now it's impossible for them ever to come back to faith. I've said over and over again that one of the keys to unlocking the understanding of the book of Hebrews is understanding to whom he's talking. And last week I said it really clearly that I I firmly believe that this passage is talking about non-believers. I am completely convinced uh, in the time that I've spent in this passage over the years affirming with other theologians that he is in fact talking about not Christ followers, but people who have grown up in church. People who have heard the Gospel over and over again. People who have been a part of the fellowship of believers. Who have in all these ways experienced these things, but have never genuinely given their life to Jesus. That's not hard for us to imagine. Matthew 7, 21-23, Jesus says, Not everyone who said to me, Lord, Lord, will go to heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And, and He said, Many people will say to me on that day, but didn't we do all these things in Your name? 
And Jesus will tell them, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. So there's a way in which we're afraid uh, for those of us who have heard the gospel but are struggling with this concept of assurance of salvation. And so let's take a look at this passage and let's break it down a little bit so that we can have a clearer understanding. And God willing, my prayer for you is that you would find peace that surpasses all understanding. That you would walk out of here this morning with assurance of salvation that only the Holy Spirit can give you. Now to those of you who are believers in the room, I'd ask you just to join with me in praying that God brings a settledness to those hearers in the congregation this morning who really struggle with this idea of am I saved or not? So there are some textual clues that tell us that this is directed uh, toward unbelievers. In verses 1-3, through he talks about let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now this is one of the first clues because we know that as Christ followers, we never really get over the gospel, do we? There's never a time when we don't look at the cross and say, that was where I was supposed to be. There's never a time when we're done with Jesus and we move on to more mature things. This isn't one of those faiths that has multiple levels and multiple layers. This is the beauty of the gospel is that it can be grasped by a child and he can be as mature as anybody else as long as he understands that Jesus died a substitutionary death for him or her. This is one of those faiths where you never get over the initial thing that brought you in. And if you do, uh, then you might not have got the initial thing. And the initial thing is that Jesus absolutely loves you. That He adores you. He loves you so much. You are of such great value to God that He was willing to give His only Son for you. That love that God has for you with which He sent His own Son to die for you, that is the doctrine of salvation. This is not what He's talking about. The elementary doctrine of Christ is not what He's talking about here. Uh, He's talking about uh, Christos, the the Greek translation of the word Messiah. And so he's telling these Hebrew Jewish people, leave the elementary doctrines uh, that are describing the coming Messiah. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, we see the foundation for this audience were all of these great stories that pointed toward the reality that a Redeemer is coming. Now you think about Genesis 3.15, there's the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The, the Jewish people were steeped in this understanding of the Old Testament, and so they would have picked up on all these nuances, all these pictures, all these shadows that would have been fulfilled in Christ. So whenever they heard Jesus talking, they would have picked up on all those things. They would have understood Noah sheltering his people from the wrath of God in the ark, that Jesus would be that ark that shelters his people they would have understand abraham sacrificing a replacement ram for his only son whom he loves after they've gone on this three-day journey to the mountain where god will provide the sacrifice and he lays the wood on his own son as he climbs the mountain and the wood is laid on his son's back and he goes up and he lays on the altar and he says god will provide a substitute and he looks up and he sees a substitute This was clearly depicting who Jesus was and what He accomplished. It all sounds familiar. It all begins to look like Jesus. And the Jews would have seen this, even if we don't see this, maybe we see it in sort of black and white, but they would have seen this in HD 4K clarity. They would have seen Jesus' fulfillment of all these Old Testament shadows and pictures concerning the Messiah. Those were the elementary doctrines that foreshadowed the Christ. 
They could not have missed Him. He encourages them to go on to completeness. And this isn't the idea of maturity where they're immature in the sense that they're a baby Christian if they're still talking about the Gospel of Jesus and they have to move on to deeper things, more informed things. If they understood Greek word studies and Hebrew word studies and all these cultural nuances that then they would be mature. It's a, a point of demarcation. They're either immature, lacking Christ, or they're mature and complete in Christ. So he tells them to go on to completeness, to, to leave these foreshadowings about the doctrine of the Messiah. He then gives them three couplets, these three uh, joint phrases in a row. Repentance from dead works and faith in God uh, is the first one. Instruction about washing and the laying on of hands is the second one. And resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment is the, second, is the third one. He's telling these um, unbelieving Jews who had heard the gospel <clears throat> to leave this idea from repentance of dead works and of faith in God. When we talk about the idea of dead works, it doesn't sound like salvation, does it? It doesn't use the language of faith that we understand in the Gospel and in the New Testament. It doesn't, when he's talking about dead works, he's talking about works that don't contribute to your salvation. You know, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by works, so that nobody can boast. So we understand that works don't contribute to our salvation at all. But for them, they were experiencing these dead works that were supposed to contribute to their salvation. This is what they were repenting from. These were their initial doctrines. He talks about general faith in God. James 2 describes how even demons believe that there is a God and they do nothing about that. So general faith in God does not demonstrate faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. When I was in high school, I'd just become a brand new believer. Uh, at the time, I was uh, living out of a friend's office. I was temporarily homeless. Uh, and for about a month, I spent time uh, sleeping on the couch of a friend's office. I had just been converted I had just given my life to Christ a few months earlier. And during this time, I was being discipled and I was growing in my faith uh, so much. And I, I was sharing the gospel so often with people because I'd experienced such a transformation in my life. And I was maybe a believer for six months. At this one particular time at this office, I was on a phone uh, call with a, a friend of mine from school, this girl named Elaine, and she began to talk about how excited she was about fellowship of Christian athletes and this ministry that I was heading up. And, and the longer she talked, she was extremely enthusiastic about faith in God. And as she was talking on and on and on again, uh, I, I was reading the Bible. I don't know if you do that ever, uh, but I was doing something else while I was also listening to her. I'm not trying to be rude or anything. That's just generally what I was doing. And as I was reading, I was reading in 1 John, and, and as she was talking, I kept noticing that she would always talk generally about her excitement for God, her faith in God. And, and I got to this part. I, had all, I read 1 John 1, 2, and 3 uh, while she was talking. And then I got into 1 John 4, and it said, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets go into the world, and by this you'll know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. Now, this may not be exactly what the application was intended of that text. But I just said to her, Hey, I've noticed this whole time how excited you are about God. And I was reading in this passage that, uh, that there is a difference in those who have an understanding and a faith in Jesus Christ. 
And I noticed that you never really mentioned Jesus or the work that he has done for you. And there was silence on the other end of the phone, and then she hung up on me. <laughs> um, not the first girl who's hung up on me, but the first under those uh, circumstances. And, uh, and so she hung up, and, and I didn't know what to do with that, so I just stopped and I said, Lord, I don't know what just happened, but I hope that you'll take, um, take your word and maybe apply it to her life in some way. I'd only been a believer for a few months, so forgive me if I made a lot of big mistakes, but, but this is what happened, and I'm just recalling it to you. About 20 minutes later, uh, she called back and she said, as I've been thinking about what you said, uh, I understand I understand that I, I, I do have a general faith in God, but I, I don't know Jesus. And so I went over to her house at midnight. I don't recommend that. Um, uh, we sat in her dining room. Her parents were there and everything, but, but we sat there and, and for a few hours we just read Scripture and talked to her about what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And at the end of that time, she, she put her faith in Jesus. You see, the demons have general faith in God, and that doesn't save them, according to James, but it is this specific faith in Jesus Christ, resting in His atoning work on the cross alone is what saves us. So you may be in the room and you say, well, I believe in God, and, and yet it's not the same as having a, a faith in Jesus Christ alone. They were to repent of that. The second couplet says there were instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. And you understand from the Old Testament, the Levitical law, that there were all sorts of washings that they were supposed to do, right? And you understand when the, the scribes and the Pharisees tried to trip, trap Jesus or trick Jesus, they would say, hey, your disciples, they don't wash good enough, right? Why don't they wash enough? And, and Jesus chided them. He rebuked them and said, listen, you guys are all concerned about washing the outside of the cup, but, you, but inside of the cup it's filled with like dead men's bones. That it's, You're filthy on the inside, but you look great on the outside. Uh, this was the instruction about washings. And the laying on of hands, it talks about in Leviticus chapter 1 and then Leviticus chapter 16, that, that every father for his family would provide a clean lamb. And that as he brought this lamb to the priest, the priest would and this is graphic, but the priest would slit the throat of the lamb as the father would put his hands on the head of the lamb and thereby symbolically transferring the guilt of the sins of his family onto this sinless, clean lamb. And that as the blood rushed out of its throat, I know it's gross, but as the blood would rush out of its throat, that their guilt would be absolved through the shedding of blood of an innocent lamb. This is depicted a clear picture of Christ. But these Jewish people in this audience were still caught up in washings, laying on of hands, and ceremonial rituals, and dead works, all of these things. And this is all showing that these are not genuine believers. They're still caught up in all these Old Testament things that don't bring about salvation. We see more textual clues in verses 4 through 8. It says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. It's impossible for those who have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God. That sounds like people who have gotten saved, doesn't it, in some ways? But if you think about it and you look at the language, there is tasting. There is enlightening, there is sharing, and there is tasting of the goodness of the Word of God. Now, compare those key words, enlightened, tasted, shared, tasted again. Compare that language with the secure language that is given to the believers in Jesus Christ. Believers are born again. 
Believers are held in God's hand and can't be snatched out of it. Believers are filled with the Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our salvation. Believers are promised that God will finish the good work that God began in them. Listen to this, these words from John MacArthur. He says, in all these verses that I just read of Hebrews 6, there is no term ever used in the New Testament elsewhere in reference to salvation. Do you see the term saved? Do you see justified? Do you see righteous? Do you see called? Do you see elect? Do you see believers, Christians, sons, redeemed, sanctified, adopted, chosen, bought, regenerated, born again? Do you see any of them here? You see none of them. Those are all pre-salvation ministries which prepared people to believe. Do you think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Do you see any of that ministry in this passage? That are, they are born of the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, dwelt by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Is any of that here? No. Just tasting and feeling, seeing. These are not believers. They're right up to the edge. And these are those who might fall away. And that's tragic. It's tragic. It's tragic that someone would be able to say, on the day of judgment, they would, they would stand before God and He would say, why should I let you into heaven? And you would say, because I'm a good person or because I attended XYZ church or because I was a part of this denomination or because my dad was a pastor or my uncle was a pastor or my grandfather was a missionary. That there is nothing outside of salvific faith in Jesus Christ demonstrated by repentance that saves. There is no heavenly attendance role checking your attendance box this morning. That will contribute to your salvation. There is absolute insecurity for the one who has withheld faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And that's where many of you daily dwell, wondering Am I really saved? At the same time, there is absolute security for the Christ follower. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding. There is a sense in which Romans 8, I just have to allude to the passage and the believers around the room will get goosebumps that His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are born again. There are at least 20 tests in the New Testament that that demonstrate genuine believers. And those who are in Christ, all of those passages, all of those phrases resonate in our soul because we know that we are in His hand and cannot be snatched away. There is absolute security for the Christ follower. If you struggle with that, in the book of 1 John, there are at least five tests of salvation. If you read 1 John daily for the next four or five weeks, if you participate in Greg's Sunday school class as they work through the book of 1 John, you will see all these tests of salvation. So what do we do with this? How do we... How do we walk away from this passage? Understanding, and you may not believe me, it's okay, but you may not believe me that this is geared toward unbelievers, but I'm convinced it is. And and that's the view I'm presenting this morning, is that this is about people who have grown up in church who have never given their life to Jesus. And I want you to know this morning that God can give you the assurance of salvation. If you flip over a few books to 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, I want you to see that God wants you to walk in assurance. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. God wants you to have assurance. I read a book this week that I'm going to mention in a few minutes. And one of the ways he describes assurance is in the same way that uh, this weekend I went to the Poconos to teach uh, college retreats for Arcadia students. And every year I've done this for eight or ten years. And, and um, this book that I was reading, he, he made the comment that he wants his children to have assurance every time he travels. And I didn't try this, but he said, whenever I leave home, I tell my kids, you know, dad's coming back Sunday. I'll be back. Don't worry about me. Uh, I'm coming back. Or maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not your dad after all. Maybe you're not my children. Why don't you think about that while I'm gone? <laughs> what a terrible thing for a dad to say, right? <laughs> to make his kids question who they are and whose they are and if he's their dad and all that. And he said, if we're a good father and we want to give our children a good assurance, how much more would God, your father in heaven, how much more would he want you to know that you are his child? And that's why for the believers in the room, you might stand here this morning and say, yeah, I'm still struggling with sin, but man, the the testimony of Jesus in my heart assures me that I know Him. And for others in the room, there is a struggle with assurance. And it's my sincere, sincere prayer, and it has been for a while leading up to this passage, that there would be a peace that falls on this room, that God would grant assurance of salvation to those who hear it. He closed this passage with verse 7 and 8. Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a useful crop is blessed from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. And that picture summarizes it for us. That if the rain is the word of God and the gospel, and it has rained on you for 10 years, as you've heard the Bible preach, if it's rained on you for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years, and the crop that has resulted from your disbelief in the gospel has been bad fruit, chances might be that you are unsaved. But if you've heard the gospel and you've responded to it in faith, and and though you're fighting sin, and though you're fighting temptation, and though you're struggling, you're here today and you could say, I'm still in Christ. Even if you don't remember the day and the time and the hour and the address, but you know without a shadow of a doubt today that your heart is held by Christ because you placed your faith in Him. You're not counting on a prayer you prayed or an aisle you walked or a baptism that you underwent, but, but you're resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you on the cross. You can stand assured that you are His. You can stand assured that you are His. And it's my prayer that you would seek that, that you would find that peace today. Father, we thank You for Your Word that it is so clear. We thank You that it is undeniable in so many ways that there doesn't have to be doubt. There doesn't have to be shades of nuance. That it is absolutely clear there are only two categories. Those who have faith in the Son of God and those who don't. So I pray all around the room today that as believers and unbelievers are are seeking assurance that You would grant that. That Your Spirit would testify with their spirit that they know You. And for those who don't have that assurance, I pray that you would grant it in the name of Jesus. That those whom you are calling at this moment would place their faith in you and demonstrate it by repentance. That you would use this sermon for your good and for your glory. That those who struggle would be able to rest in the finished work of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.